Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi and welcome to the Progressive Britain podcast. I'm Joe Holland. On this episode, I speak to Roman Krasnarek, philosopher and author of The Good Ancestor. It's a book about how we have colonised the future and what we can do to think long term in a way that takes unborn generations into account. So hi, Roman. Thank you so much for coming on the Progressive Britain podcast. Oh, it's a huge pleasure. Looking forward to the conversation. So I really thoroughly enjoyed the book. It um, it did change my perspective. It didn't just alter it, it really just significantly changed it. And I think it's a very important book. And I've already got two people to read it so far since I started reading it. And they love it as well. So we are, we're promulgating it. Um, I want to get to the base, the basics of your argument first, which is that we have these two brains inside us and that we need to activate one over the other, one being the marshmallow brain and that we need to activate the acorn brain over that marshmallow brain. Can you tell us about, tell our listeners about the marshmallow brain versus the acorn brain and why it's so crucial that we activate the latter? Sure. I think all of us feel a kind of struggle going on in our own minds between drivers of short-termism and drivers of long-termism. Like, do we upgrade to the latest iPhone or, you know, plant a seed in the ground for posterity? Do we party tonight or save for our pensions for tomorrow? And that's what's going on in all of us, That the short and the long. And I've got these two parts of the, the brain that I think about, as you said, the marshmallow and the acorn. So the marshmallow brain is the part of our brain which is dominated by those short-term drivers, the partying today, the upgrading to the latest iPhone. And it's named after the famous marshmallow test from the 1960s, where, you know, as you probably know, a marshmallow is placed in front of kids in the psychology experiment. And if they could resist eating it for 15 minutes, they're rewarded with a second marshmallow. And most kids couldn't resist it and snatch the snack. And we tend to think of ourselves as quite short-term creatures, always clicking the buy now button, driven by instant gratification and immediate rewards. But there's, there's this other narrative that we don't hear about so much in the same way that, you know, we hear this narrative about the ego that we're just individualistic creatures, but we now know we're also driven by more, more cooperative tendencies and empathy as well. It's the same when it comes to the short-term and the long-term brain. So we've got this long-term part of our brains, which I call the acorn brain, in contrast to the marshmallow. And that's the part of our neuroanatomy that's all about long-term thinking and planning and strategizing. And it lives in the frontal lobe at the top of our heads, particularly a bit, if you want to know, called the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex. But that part of the brain is better developed in humans than most other creatures. So like a chimpanzee might get a stick, strip off the leaves and turn it into a tool to poke into a termite hole. That's, you know, that's planning ahead a bit, but they'll never make a dozen of those tools and set them aside for next week. But that's exactly what human beings do. We have this capacity to think beyond the here and now. And that is how we save for our kids' educations. That's why we write songless for our own funerals. That's how we built the Great Wall of China and voyaged into space. It's by switching on this acorn brain. And if you think about it, so many of the issues facing us politically, economically, culturally today are issues which require this kind of long-term acorn thinking, whether it's dealing with the climate emergency or tackling the 
long-term threats of new technologies like artificial intelligence or bioweapons or planning for the next pandemic that might be on the horizon or tackling deep racial and wealth inequalities that would get passed on from generation to generation. That all requires not the marshmallow, but the acorn. Mm. And you then set out six ways throughout the book in which we can think long, six ways for us to think long as a species and to manifest our acorn brain, to bring it to the forefront and to to engage that powerful human PFC, that prefrontal cortex that you talk about. And the first one is deep time humility, which I found fascinating. And I was hoping you could explain for our listeners what it is and also specifically talking about the advent of the clock at the beginning of the um, Industrial Revolution, because I found that really interesting, and then about the difference between viewing the world, clocking in and clocking out, and viewing the world as it, the world the, the world is moving with a cyclical time frame rather than one that's related to a 24-hour clock. So, so could you tell us about deep time humility and how those two different ways of viewing the world are, are important and key? Well, let's start with the way we think about time in today's society, that time has been speeding up not just in recent years because of our phones and we're constantly looking at them 110 times a day. But in fact, this is a story which goes back 500 years to the invention of the first mechanical clocks in the 14th century, where time started being sliced up into smaller and smaller portions. So for those first clocks used to ring or chime every hour. Um, but by 1700, most clocks had minute hands. By 1800, they had second hands. And so the clock then became the key machine of the Industrial Revolution. Right, keeping those assembly lines moving, making workers work faster and faster and faster. You know, that's what Henry Ford's assembly lines were all about. And of course, now we've got nanosecond speed sh share trading, but that's bringing the future closer and closer to the present. And what we need to draw, and I think in contrast to that, because that short-term clock time is one of the, the drivers of our myopia in politics and in economics today, we need to develop this idea of deep time humility, as you say, which is the first of those six ways to think long-term in my book. And deep time humility is all about recognizing that humankind is just an eye blink in the cosmic story, that human beings have been around for just a couple of hundred thousand years, which is nothing in terms of the history of the planet going back nearly four billion years of life on Earth and all the billions of years of life to come, whether we're here or not, uh, when, when our sun dies. And it's quite hard to grasp that idea of deep time humility it can feel a bit abstract. Like, you know, I know personally, if I look at those geological tables which have got the jurassic and the cretaceous written on, on them they do nothing for me right but think about this there's this wonderful metaphor i came across which is like imagine that the age of the earth is the distance from your nose to the tip of your outstretched hand one stroke of a nail file on your middle finger erases human history and that's short right and that matters because if you think about it, in that tiny period since the Industrial Revolution, just a couple of hundred years, humankind has wrought incredible damage with our ecological destruction and our tech, you know, dangerous technologies. And there's a, the humility issue about deep time humility is like, who are we to have wreaked such havoc? You know, who are we to break that chain of life? You know, and of course, these cycles are very different from the cycles we get in politics, the two or four year cycles of elections or the cycles of the 24 seven media, deep times about getting in touch with longer cycles, cycles of, of seasons, cycles of carbon cycles. And I mean, even just, you know, I recently turned 50 and, and with my kids for my birthday and my partner, I took them to visit this ancient yew tree about 10 minute bike ride from my house in Oxford. And you can actually climb up inside this yew tree in, into the branches. We had a picnic up there, which might sound a bit odd, but it was a way of getting in touch with the deeper sense of time because there's this tree being there for nearly 900 years. It's witnessed the English Civil War and the Black Death in the 14th century. And it's going to be here long after I'm dead, right? And that's about getting in those, you know, touch with, my call it a kind of tree time alongside deep time. Um, but, you know, it's not easy. I'm not saying it's easy, but we need to recognize that the shortness of our, our destructive capacity. Yeah, the um, the metaphor about the the tiny little f filing of, the, of a fingernail and how that symbolizes the entirety of human history um, within the universe was fascinating and really groundbreaking. I think if people just do that thought experiment by themselves, put their armor in front of them and realize that that tiny little edge of their fingernail is the entirety of human history really 
it it has to necessarily alter your perspective i feel it's so powerful and you mentioned the tree time and in the book there's a huge picture of the giant tree in the american museum of natural history which has marks along the inside of the trunk where you can see different important periods of time or important events in time and it shows you how long that tree has existed and what you the point you make very powerfully in that first that first chapter for me is you do place human beings within the broad scope of the universe and really bring the reader to terms with the fact that they are totally unimportant and i think that is such a crucial i know that's why you do it it's so crucial to to set our minds up to understand that we have this responsibility and we ourselves our ego must be subdued in some way we're not that important we have to understand the um the things that the things that are greater importance and have been around for 13.8 billion years um so i talk about the ego i'm interested because you then move on to discuss the to talk about the legacy mindset which is one of the, the second way you talk about thinking long um engendering a, a legacy mindset and I know you discuss how there's there's a thing called a death nudge and how the death nudge can give us the sense of our mortality and encourage us to 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 perceive the future as important and future generations as important. But I'm I I found myself pulling and pushing with that argument throughout the chapter because I feel that humans are very egotistical and I think that we really want to feel like it's about ourselves. So for me the powerful thing about the legacy mindset which is it's a way to make people feel as if what they do now does matter for the future. So Tell me a bit about how you see the legacy mindset and whether you think it's that, um, whether you think it's necessary for us to be that self-absorbed when we're approaching it. I mean, human beings are pretty self-absorbed creatures. You know, David Hume in the 18th century philosopher said we're both serpents and doves. You know, we are driven by ego, but we also have more communal sides to ourselves. And the thing about our mortality is that it's a great blessing. Of course, there are the tragedies of death, you know, but the thing about our mortality is that because we die, most human beings want to be remembered in some way, particularly once they reach middle age. It's it's called generativity in, in, in psychology. And so we want to be remembered after we're gone. We want to keep the fire of our own life still burning. But the question then is, how do we go about doing that? And there's definitely a very egoistic way of going about that, like a Russian oligarch who wants a wing of the National Gallery or a football stadium named after them. And that's very much, as you say, that kind of egoistic drive. I think most people are actually driven, they get beyond the ego by wanting to leave a legacy of some kind to their family members. They want to leave a home to their children or pass on culture and traditions. Um, But I think if you're going to be a good ancestor, which is what my book's all about, going to be remembered well by future generations, I think you need to get beyond the ego and beyond even that family sense of legacy to something a bit more universal, about caring about the universal strangers of the future. I mean, if you think about when the the National Health Service was set up in Britain after the Second World War, the language that was used was about the universal stranger, about caring about people beyond your own family, beyond even your own city. you know, people within the national borders, they weren't just sort of uh, any place. Um, And I think it's a bit like that with legacies. We need to think, how do we leave a legacy to these future generations who we're never going to meet? Because if you think about it, there are 7.7 billion people alive today, but in the next two centuries alone, tens of billions of people are going to be born, yet they have no political voice. They have, you know, I used to be a political scientist. I used to teach courses on democracy, it never once occurred to me, I mean, so some time ago, it never once occurred to me that we disenfranchise those future generations in the same way that, say, women and slaves have been systematically excluded from political participation. Yet we do. So we've got to think about our our legacies, but then how do we nudge ourselves away from just a kind of an egoistic version of legacy um, to something a bit broader than that? And I think there's a kind of let's say, a behavioral psychology answer, which I think is quite limited, but it's worth thinking about. So here's a a bit of really interesting evidence I came across when writing this book. So in the UK, on average, 6% of people leave a charitable bequest in their wills. So in other words, that's a gift to future generations to maybe it could be a wildlife charity or a cancer research or something like that. So it's for something for the future beyond their own family, 6%. If people are asked, would you like to leave a charitable bequest in, their, in your will, suddenly it goes up from 6% to 12%. And if someone then says to them, um, a lot of people like leaving charitable bequests in their wills, is there an issue you really care about? Suddenly it jumps up to 17%. So with a few just verbal nudges, 
you can actually get people to start giving more money to future generations, billions and billions of pounds more. And that's one approach. But I think a deeper approach is to go at the, the angle, I think, of, of values, our deeper values and connection to future generations. It's really hard to picture um, you know, people living in the 22nd century, for example. But I can think about my daughter, who's 12 now. She could easily be alive in the year 2100. So if I care about her life, you know, her future isn't science fiction. It's an intimate family fact, just a step away from my own. If she's got, if she has grandchildren, they could be alive well to the end of the 22nd century. So if I care about, say, my daughter's life as she ages, I need to care about kind of all life because I need to care about the air she breathes and the water she drinks. So taking that step of thinking about a legacy we want to leave to our own family member can actually be a bridge to a broader sense of legacy. And something I found really interesting, and I'll stop talking in a second, because I really love this, this subject and the way you asked the question. I was giving this briefing to members of parliament in the UK a few months ago, and they were from across um, the party spectrum. But for all their differences on policy, what they all get is the idea of wanting to leave a legacy and be remembered well, because they've got most of them have got children or grandchildren or nephews or nieces that there's a way of connecting, you know, even if you can't always connect with their political views specifically, but there's a way of getting them all to care about beyond the here and now. But of course, they are caught in really short term cycles. And this, this ability for us to suddenly understand why legacy is important, you refer to it as the legacy switch. And I think that's a really interesting way of saying it, because you can apply that to anyone just you need to find your legacies. The, the thing that turns your legacy switch, the switch is your legacy switch on. And for you, that might be your daughter. It can be, you know, um, it can be an understanding of how, how unimportant we are in time. It can be a desire to improve the environment. So, um, and also you mentioned oxygen there. I remember a part of the book where you say there's argon atoms in the air, the oxygen we breathe, that those same argon atoms were, were breathed by Mahatma Gandhi and by Martin Luther King and by incredibly famous people throughout history because there's so many of those atoms that they circulate the planet and everyone ends up breathing in the same argon atoms, which is such a beautiful way of describing how we're all interlinked throughout the generations. Yeah, I have to admit, I stole that idea from the great um, Canadian environmentalist and geneticist David Suzuki, who um, you know wrote about those argon atoms. And I, I remember being blown away when I heard about that because it really situates us in this sort of intergenerational linked history you know you're breathing in the air that yeah martin luther king or junior or cleopatra or the buddha breathed in but will also be breathed in seven generations from now and longer it's yeah it's so powerful it really is very powerful and another way you talk about thinking long is intergenerational justice and then later on in the book you talk about deep democracy as one of the ways which we, which people or activists right now are manifesting your six ways of thinking long, one of the ways in which they're trying to implement it using deep democracy. So if we could talk about those two things together, and specifically, I'm interested in whether you think an understanding of intergenerational justice will only come from manifestations of deep democracy and specifically citizens assembly. I'm very interested in which you talk about a lot. There's already examples of citizens assemblies across the world. Do you think that holds a key to unlocking our idea of intergenerational justice? Yeah, I absolutely do. I mean, I, I think that the question of intergenerational justice is going to be one of the great sites of struggles around rights and justice in the 21st century, because, you know, we've had long struggles for rights of various kind, the rights of women, indigenous people, people with disabilities, or, and a lot of those struggles are still going on. But the one that we haven't really tackled very much is the rights and our responsibilities to future generations. And, you know, Groucho Marx once said, why should I care about future generations? What have they ever done for me? And I think intuitively that makes sense to a lot of people who are thinking about, look, I've got enough problems in my own life now. Maybe I've lost my job. Maybe some of my family's died due to COVID. Why should I care about those people long into the future? But I think at least philosophers have been thinking a lot about this issue, at least for half a century about our moral responsibility to the future, not just because there are so many more of those people in the future than there are today, you know, that there's a sort of a, a utilitarian weight 
towards the future that outweighs who we are today. But there's also other ways of thinking about that connection philosophically. So for example, that most of us know the idea of the golden rule, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. But you can also apply that intergenerationally. Why not do unto future generations how past generations, how you would have wanted past generations to have done unto you? And that raises all these ideas. Okay, how are we going to honor that in our political systems, which are so caught in short-term cycles? How do we put intergenerational justice into practice? Um, how do you give rights, for example, to future people? Well, there's really interesting examples here, and I'll get to the Citizen Assembly in a second, but like in the US, they're developing struggles at the moment about giving, literally giving rights to future generations, enshrining them constitutionally. So there's an organization called Our Children's Trust, which has taken the federal government to court on behalf of 21 young people who are campaigning for the legal right to a safe climate and healthy atmosphere for both current and future generations. This is amazing. I mean, it's one of the most incredible shifts in the history of rights since the French Revolution. Now, they may not be successful. These struggles will go on for years, as legal struggles often do. And you could criticize them for being too slow as a method of approaching these problems of tackling the climate crisis, for example. Um, but those movements for rights for future generation are very, very much developing. We'll see more and more of that. But you mentioned the, another option, which is the idea of citizens' assemblies. And I too find these really, really interesting because we know that in many ways, to put it starkly, democracy is dying. You know, over the last 30 years, we've seen declining faith in traditional parties and electoral systems, rising voter apathy. You know, I'm talking like across the Western world broadly. Of course, there are individual countries that buck that trend. And we've seen the rise of far-right populism and strongman leaders um, challenging the basis of representative democracy itself. Right? And that raises some pretty tough questions for our democratic models, whether you're into PR or majoritarian or wherever you stand. There's something going wrong here. Right? And that's partly what's fired the rise of interest in participatory democracy, deliberative democracy, like citizens' assemblies, like they had in Ireland, which led to the abortion referendum. They've used them in, in Spain and Belgium, where you randomly select people. So they're representative of different social backgrounds and age backgrounds, and you've got gender and ethnic diversity. They tend to take a much longer view than your everyday politicians because they're not caught in the same short-term cycles. They're not subject to the same media influences, corporate funding influences and things like that. So I've got great faith in citizens' assemblies for helping, in a way, revive democracy um, in general because of the shift towards the far right and the growing voter apathy and decline of faith in traditional parties. But also I have faith in citizens' assemblies because of their capacity to take the long view. But I think we need to be more innovative with them. You know, I've taken part in some citizens' assemblies as a kind of an outside expert coming in to talk uh, to them. And I really have faith in them that they're not always easy to run and they can be expensive and it's hard to engage people sometimes. But they're really important lessons to learn from other places. Like in Japan, for example, there's this amazing movement called Future Design, which is a kind of citizen assembly related form of democratic decision making at the city and town level, where what they do is they invite local people to discuss and draw up plans for the town and city where they live. And then they typically split them into two groups. Half are told their residents from the present day. And the other half are given these like ceremonial robes to wear. Um, and they're told to imagine themselves as residents from the year 2060. And it turns out when they're dressed up as residents from 2060, they come up with much more radical plans for the place where they live, whether it's long-term healthcare investment, action on climate change, dealing with job insecurity due to automation or tackling COVID-19. And this movement, in Japan has spread now from small cities to big cities like Kyoto. It's even used in Japan's Ministry of Finance um, and some big companies as well, like Fujitsu. So that's really making a more explicit attempt to turn on that long-term acorn brain, saying, okay, let's have a citizen's assembly, but let's try to imagine ourselves as citizens from 2060. So look, I'm not saying citizens' assemblies are the answer to everything in the world, but God, what a thing that we need to at least try to work with today, particularly because of that declining faith in traditional parties. I don't know. What do you think? I, I, I agree. I think the fact that there's already been success with citizens' assemblies means that we can place a bit more faith in it. We've already seen that it works. We've already seen that, that it's powerful and that it, it can help us to think long term. So I also want to ask you about um, 
devolution and whether you think devolution is the answer because you talk about the city-state and the city-state outlasting various different nation-states or civilizations that have existed um and you have a map in the book of all the different city-states that would exist in Europe and it gives you a sense of how power could be devolved and how it might be a lot easier and a lot more um a lot better for us in the long term if we did act, act uh, live and activate ourselves on a municipal level on a city level instead of on the level of the nation state why do you think devolution could work why is that something that you see as a solution to these long-term issues well there are a couple of reasons why i think devolution is so vital one is historically we know that cities particularly have been really good at dealing with long-term problems that's why cities like istanbul and varanasi and athens and luyong in china have survived for millennia while nations and empires have risen and fallen around them you know i mean just think of a city like london in the 19th century after the famous great stink of 1858 when people tens of thousands of people were dying of cholera each year and the stench was so bad that mps finally got the message to invest in the sewers well they built a sewer system twice as big as it needed to be for the population at the time and that's why it's still used today that was a classic example um, of a kind of long-term thinking at the city level. There's a really interesting question there about what, why were the sewers built twice as big as they needed to be? Was it just through the benevolence of the chief engineer, Sir Joseph Bazalgette? Was it a kind of a Victorian empire psychology where they sort of felt that the empire would last forever? Wherever it comes from, there's a lot of this around in cities. And so... That is one reason why we should start thinking, okay, maybe actually cities will be really good at dealing with things like climate change. Because cities have been good at dealing with flooding, at integrating migrants, um, all sorts of things, you know, uh, uh, for hundreds of years. But also the other reason I have such faith in cities is that in my book, I've actually looked at some of the data on what makes for good long-term public policy, which countries actually perform well when it comes to long-term investment in healthcare and education or dealing with wealth inequality or taking action on um, switching to renewable energy and tackling deforestation. And in the book, there's this index called the Intergenerational Solidarity Index developed by a great st statistical thinker called Jamie McQuilkin. And we worked together on this. And what we did is we looked to see, okay, which countries did well on this index? Um, and what does that tell us about their characteristics? Well, Certain countries do well, like Iceland does very well on this index of Costa Rica. The UK is only 45th out of 122 countries. But one thing we find out is that countries are more likely to do well if they're democracies rather than autocracies. So don't think becoming like China or Singapore and giving up civil and political rights is necessarily going to save you. Because a lot of people think, oh, we just need, those, need a benign dictatorship like Singapore will be fine. No, the evidence actually isn't there. But the other thing, that is in, in the book, which is actually buried in a bit of a footnote, I have to admit, and I should have put it more in the main text, is that there's a very strong correlation between this intergenerational solidarity index and decentralization of government. So more decentralized your government is, like Switzerland, for example, the more long-term your public policy. It's not a complete cast iron rule. So I'm just saying that there's strong evidence there that cities and towns tend to perform pretty well. And and I think that's a that's a good enough argument for me, I think, for getting really serious about, about devolution, not just at the city level, could be at the regional level, could be at the town level. It, it really depends on your political system. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. 
In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Because one thing that struck me was you mentioned just now the difference between the, the totalitarian autocratic states and the democratic states and how actually over history, democratic states have done better at planning long term. And you talk about citizens' assembly and devolution as two possible um, ways in which we can um, have deep democracy. And they strike me as ways that people can imbue their lives with more agency. I mean, if you have devolution, you have more localised power, people feel as if their votes matter more. And then citizens' assembly is a more, uh, it's not direct democracy, because we know that sometimes doesn't work, um, referendums, etc. But citizens' assemblies are ways that people can manifest their agency and have more power in their politics. Is that something you see as key? People having agency to actually do something about the future? Because it's so easy to look at um, what you call the, you call it networked uncertainty. It's very easy for us to stand in the face of this networked uncertainty, these these combined um, issues of global uncertainty and feel completely doomed. So do you think that, that um, imbuing people's lives with more agency can, can solve that issue? I absolutely think that agency is key. And it's really interesting that you, you you focus on that because in a way in the book, although I talk about agency, I I don't probably emphasize it quite enough, partly because I've written about it in other books, actually. In fact, there's a book of mine I wrote called Carpe Diem Regained, The Vanishing Art of Seizing the Day. And that's all about agency. And and one of the points I make in that book is that if if you if you're going to take action, as a human being, whether it's in your everyday life or on a more social or political level, you need to feel that the actions are going to make a difference, right? That's what the carpe diem sees the day philosophy is about. But there's another expression which I kind of invented in that, that other book, which is not carpe diem, sees the day, but carpamus diem, which is the, the plural version of the Latin carpe diem. Carpamus diem means let's seize the day together. In other words, it's about collective agency. And if you think about human history, it's that, that, that collective sense that we can take action. It makes a difference, which is so empowering, whether it's bringing down the Berlin Wall in November 1989 or embarking on the Occupy movement or Black Lives Matter. You know that when people are together, you know, agency doesn't have to be something that we think about that we do just alone. You know, and I think when taking it to the level that you're talking about there in terms of whether, you know, devolution for example, citizens' assemblies. Yes, these are ways of giving us agency. Um, now, the citizens' assemblies, in a way, is a collective way of doing it. We're doing it together. And devolution could be a more individualistic one if it's just about, okay, I'm just voting for my local politician who may have more power. Um, but I think we need to, in a way, generate that collective sense of agency. I mean, I still think the actions of individuals matter. You know, especially if you can do actions that can be amplified, you know, just in a tiny way in my own life recently, my partner and I got rid of our car, right? We got a fossil fuel car we had for 14 or 15 years and we've joined the local cooperative car club around and there's a electric car about 200 meters from our house. We're lucky because we live in a sort of suburban area. Not everyone has that options, but by giving up our car, we, <laughs> the place where we used to park our car outside the house, um, you know, out on the street, just for fun, what we've started doing the last few weeks since we gave up the car is getting bright colored chalk and just drawing pictures on the ground, you know, just to let people know that we've done something. We're not telling anybody, not trying to preach to people, you must give up your car. We're trying to be playful about trying to reclaim a community space, you know, a road. Why should a big hunk of metal have the right to sit there? You know, a fossil fuel chugging piece of metal. Um, and I think those up, you know, we get people stopping and saying, hey, what's going on? Why, why have you drawn all over here? Then you can tell them the story about joining the local cooperative car club. 
And in a way, those car clubs, part of a genuine sharing economy, not a car club that's actually secretly owned by Avis or Hertz, but you know, the one we use, Common Wheels, is a genuine cooperative. I mean, that too is embodies a set of solutions for taking a longer term view of the world. I can certainly relate to that. I've been a bad vegan for about four years. And um, I'm a terrible vegan. I try. <laughs> it's, I've always better to be a bad vegan than no vegan at all. But I do find that the best way for me to approach discussions about eating or not eating animal products with my friends is to joke about it and just say, oh, dead, dead animals. How do you how do you eat dead animals and enjoy it? <laughs> and I do feel like that's a very powerful way just to try and bring people on board. Because when I first thought about being a vegan, I thought it's just too much. I read Yuval Noah Harari's book, Homo Sapiens. He talks about the agricultural revolution. I thought humans aren't supposed to eat meat in the way that we do. And that's when I became vegan. But it's difficult when you walk into a shop and there are no products and no options and everyone else is eating meat. So you have to, um, I think you have to take a um, a humoristic stance towards it, I feel, because that's the only way you stay sane. And it's the yeah. best way to get people on board in the first place, because when you start doing it, it then feels good and you want to continue, you know? Yeah, I agree with that. I think particularly that individual level, I think the playful attitude can really help you know and it just doesn't work to throw statistics at somebody's face about whether it's veganism or fossil fuels or whatever i think again collectively you can do that more and change the narrative um in a society whether it's by taking to the streets like xr or you know i i get the opportunity to write newspapers or go on telly and stuff like that and i can try and do a, a small bit to you know put different ideas in, into the world um, but I think you kind of need all approaches in the same way that you need all approaches to getting people to care about long-term thinking. You know, um, not every argument works for everybody. Some people care about their kids' futures. Some people care more about trees, you know, and you've got to work with it all. Mm -hmm. No, certainly. Very briefly, but I, there's so much I want to talk about. But before we talk, before we discuss the elephant in the room, what I, what I, what I see is the elephant in the room running throughout your book, which is neoliberal, um, growth-obsessed, capitalism i want to go very briefly back to you a few minutes ago you talked about inter intergenerational justice and you mentioned the golden rule which is of course what you learn in philosophy as the kind of basic deontological argument for, for being a good person and then you talked about utilitarianism which is the kind of emmanuel kant versus jeremy bentham the original philosophical dispute between deontology and utilitarianism and it struck me that even if you if you take the deontological perspective on on uh, living or you take the utilitarian perspective either way future generations are not included and i wonder what bentham's utilitarian calculus would have been if he had included future generations into that calculus and i wonder how differently you'd live deontologically if like you say you apply the golden rule to future generations so um it's interesting looking back on studying philosophy and how you really like you say you don't even think about building future generations into any kind of life calculus yeah i think uh, i think that's absolutely right i mean i did philosophy and politics in my first degree a bit of economics somewhere along the line too and i never came across any of these arguments i never even thought about them i've had to kind of rediscover them in my late 40s you know early 50s um but you know once you at least my experience is once you see all those billions of future generations or think about that golden rule it's really hard to unsee it you know i'm i'm you know, it's it, they're sort of there in my in my mind, um, and and then you know when you start looking at our politics or our economies and think, oh, where's their place? Where's their voice? You know, those future generations have no influence at the ballot box or in the marketplace. What are we going to do about this? Yeah, it's, a, it's certainly a big blind spot, and of course, it's been driven by um, neoliberal microeconomics. It's been driven kind of since Adam Smith and how that was manipulated and 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 changed and edited by Milton Friedman etc and it really does seem that encounter with the world today with digital advertising 24-7 news and constant focus on profit and the attention economy and all these things which seem to place us in the here and now and drive us towards gaining more in the here and now even though your book is convincing and even though your arguments are obviously correct it it, it strikes me as as something that's going to be very difficult. I, I do think that taking your book in totality provides a very coherent, convincing argument against living this profit-maximizing, consumer-obsessed life. But do you think it's possible and realistic that we can actually drag each other 
out of this um, of this slump that we're in? It's a big question, and it's one I struggled with for the several years of writing this book. I still struggle with now because if you stand back and look at the situation we're in, you know our major institutions in society were developed for a different age. I mean, if you think about representative democracy, nation states, consumer capitalism, which basically developed in the 18th and 19th century, they were institutions developed during the Holocene, you know, a pre-climate change age. We're now in a different era, the Anthropocene, we've become the weather makers, just taking that one issue of the ecological emergency. None of our institutions are designed for this. Democracy as it currently exists in most Western countries, isn't designed for taking the long view. Nation states sit around bickering at the international conference tables while the planet burns and species disappear. And consumer culture and its neoliberal manifestation since the 1970s is completely myopic. You know, it's about wasting resources, not conserving or balancing resources. It's about the constant drive for GDP growth, which in fact is something being connected with both the left and right since the end of the Second World War, whether you're a left, right or centre government, they've all wanted growth, 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 growth. But the neoliberal um, model has been particularly myopic because it really has no sense of time in it. It's about deregulating markets now. It's not about long-term investment, say, in health or education, which, of course, governments on the left have traditionally you know, done since the development of social democracy in the 1920s and 1930s. Um, but can we get off this juggernaut of consumer capitalism that is the question now on one level you say no that's got to be impossible you know we've had 500 years of this really going back to the invention of banking under the medici in the renaissance you know how do you kick that habit um and it might seem kind of impossible um and people sort of think oh we we can tweak it okay we can have conscious capitalism or sustainable capitalism or this kind of capitalism or that kind of capitalism, I just don't buy it. Actually, I think the fundamentals of that growth-based market-driven model um, aren't going to keep us within safe planetary boundaries. This is where I think one needs to switch from the microeconomics that you were mentioning to ecological economics, which is you know a whole other branch of economics, which I never encountered when I studied economics 30 years ago, but it, you know its roots go back at least in the 1970s to people like Herman Daly, who basically said, look, if you want to have a long-term sustainable future, A, you've got to recognize that your economy is a subset of the living world, of the biosphere. So you can't use resources faster than they can be naturally regenerated, and you can't create waste faster than they can be naturally absorbed. That's a basic set of limits that we need to live in. And and that's why you can't have continuous material growth. You know, it's it's it can't go on for the long term if you have a genuinely long term vision. So the question is, are there other models around and, and can they actually be put into practice? Now, there are plenty of models that have been developing over the last decade or more. Um, you know, one of them would be the donor economics model developed by the British economist Kate Rayworth. And there are other sort of versions people talk about degrowth or the well-being economy or the circular economy all of these are kind of contenders for a different model but can any of them be put into practice well i'd say two things in general one is you can look to specific places that are being incredibly progressive in this area so take the city of amsterdam okay they've committed to creating a 100 circular economy by 2050 so a zero waste economy and to be 50% circular by 2030. That means halving the use of raw materials. And even in 2022, this may not sound significant, but I think it is, 10% of city procurement has to be circular. In other words, businesses are being pushed. If they want to get the contracts to you know, deliver, uh, and, you know, build council housing or, or clean waste, whatever, they've got to be circular. And Amsterdam is going to be have no fossil fuel cars after 2030. So they're much more progressive than most UK cities or, or, or regions. And so there's a, you can see evidence of some places taking big steps, but then you might think, well, that's not going to be enough, even though we know, say, somewhere like Copenhagen saw Amsterdam adopt the donut economy model, and now Copenhagen's doing it too, and so is Costa Rica and other places. But I tell you what really gives me hope, and this is the ultimate answer to the question. Um, while I was researching this book, I read this one line, a th like a throwaway line in this incredible book called Energy and the English Industrial Revolution by Tony Wrigley, who's an economic historian. 
Um, and in it, he says, you know, great economic thinkers in the 18th and 19th century, people like Adam Smith and David Ricardo, didn't even realize there was an industrial revolution going on when they were right in the middle of it. They couldn't see it. It was too kind of fragmented and contingent. Now, I look at today's world and I can spot all sorts of interesting things like that donut economy happening in Amsterdam or um, the, the rise of cooperatives in, in Spain or um, regenerative businesses in different parts of the world and all sorts of interesting things going on, the rise of the B Corporation movement. And if you look at them as individual examples, they don't look like big enough to challenge a big system like neoliberal consumer capitalism. But think back to Adam Smith. Well, maybe actually there is this change going on, but we can't quite see it yet. There is a development of a regenerative economy, a post-growth economy going on. Look, it may not be. We might look back in 100 years and see it as a failed startup, the regenerative economy movement. But actually, we might look back on it and see it as something genuine that's happening, but it probably won't be happening fast enough in either case. Well, you talk about the two-decade time limit, basically. We have to seriously reduce carbon emissions to stop us going above 1.5 degrees Celsius increase, which would be catastrophic. So, I mean, it is right around the corner. And so you hope that you'd hope that you're right and that these changes are that these changes do exist and that that they are they are having an effect even if we can't see it and your chapter 11 in the book is the cultural evolution chapter and i think this is the most powerful and that's the most powerful argument um for, for the position you just stated i do think that there are movies over the last 15 20 years increasingly there are more movies which show apocalyptic scenarios often driven by human action and um these these movies are seen by millions and millions and millions of people and surely they have to be changing the way that we view ourselves and the world in a way that's more fundamental than like you say in the book reading a 25 page government report on climate it's far more powerful to watch the day after tomorrow and think that would be bad what can i do to stop that so that chapter actually made me feel pretty optimistic because it made me realize there are cultural changes even if they're not, are not the same kind of magnitude of political or economic changes there are cultural changes which seem like they are they are currently subverting the the current start, status quo do you do, do you feel that same optimism because it does come across in the book yeah i do actually and i didn't think i was going to stress those cultural projects so much you know in some ways things like science fiction uh, you know, have been around since the late 19th century, H.G. Wells, Jules Verne, and, and so on. They've been trying to create a new cultural conversation which shifts our mind to the long term. But actually, those long-term views in culture, whether it's in art or fiction or theatre, are becoming more and more prominent. And I think are playing a bigger and bigger role today and a really important role. I mean, you think of someone like the um, U.S. sci-fi writer Kim Stanley Robinson. Um, he's written books which are set in the 22nd, 23rd century and so on. But his latest book is called The Ministry for the Future. And it actually covers just the next 30 years. And it, it, it's about how humankind failed to put the Paris Accord into practice, the Paris Climate Agreement, and then actually got off their asses and did something about it. Right? And, and it's a sort of the story of how that happened. And it's a highly political book. You know, it's like 1984 or... A brave new world or something like that um, and it's a but it's not just dystopian it's not utopian either it's a kind of mixture but it's out there in the public realm it, like those films you were talking about um, and like the day after tomorrow or geostorm and even if the films are a bit voyeuristic and crap you know there are more sophisticated versions out there think of i know blade runner 2049 amazing um, dystopia complex but we're thinking more about the long term and the future, perhaps than at any moment in history. And that surely is important. But I think what's vital here is that it's not just happening, that the cultural space isn't just art and, 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 and novels and things like that, important though they are, that the cultural space or the cultural conversation about the long term has to also shift into education curricula, into the way religions work um, and things like that, because we're always going to have education and religion as being too cornerstones of what creates values in society um, and we are seeing some changes in this area and I, I'm not a religious person but 
I noticed that the Pope starts, started talking about intergenerational solidarity. You know, no major religious figure of, of, of his power on, in, the, in the traditional Christian world has talked as much about the future in such a concrete way and used the language of intergenerational justice. That's amazing. Of course, getting the Vatican Bank to divest from fossil fuels and so on is a different matter. Um, but there's there's a lot of work to be done in this cultural area. And I think you're right. There's there's a lot of there's a lot of scope and there's a lot of stuff to be inspired by. I think. I'm I'm aware that we're getting to our to our um, the upper limit of our time, but we have to talk about COVID. Because running throughout the book, you point to the fact that crisis is often a catalyst for change. And I think you use Milton Friedman's quote a few times that he says that is what changes things. It's a big crisis. COVID is the biggest crisis I've seen in my life. And I think almost everyone alive on this planet will have seen in their lives. Can we seriously come out of this crisis with a perspective that will help us to solve this ecological crisis? and will help us to become more equal as nation states and as a global community? Or do you think that uh, as after the financial crash, nothing really changed, do you think it will be much of the same? Or is this a crisis where you do think there is a possibility for real genuine change? Yeah, the thing is, I don't quote Milton Friedman very often, but I do quote him in the book, as you say, saying, you know, only a crisis real or perceived creates you know, genuine change. And there's a historical truth to that. Crises do create change, but crises are like a kind of devil's fork. They can go in different directions. So, you know, the, the Wall Street crash and the depression was a crisis that led to social democracy in some countries like Scandinavia and fascism in others. You know, and I think any crisis can take us in different directions. I mean, the crisis of the Second World War, out of the ashes of the war came incredible long-term institutions like the World Health Organization, the National Health Service, the European Union, other things like that. So yeah, there's a question, okay, what's COVID going to bring us, if anything? And un unfortunately, I think, I don't think the evidence is there that it's going to create the kind of transformation that, say, the Second World War did in terms of a shift towards more long-term thinking. Certain countries and cities have really taken this as an opportunity. And, you know, Paris, for example, going back to the theme of cities, has really picked up on this COVID moment as a moment to kind of embrace a Green New Deal mentality. Right, we're going to shut the roads and turn them into parks and cycle routes or Amsterdam adopting the donut economy. But then other countries are going in the opposite direction, you know, and saying, okay, we've just got to, you know, for very real reasons, um, we've got to just give people jobs now. We've got to get people out there shopping now, you know, but that ultimately isn't a long-term perspective, but it's you know sometimes driven by immediate budgetary needs and immediate political um, desires. And so I don't think that the COVID crisis, I think in general, is going to do enough to kickstart us. I think it's doing going to do more than the, the 2008 crash. And the reason is because there are more alternative models around now than there were then, like the donut economy and the circular economy. The the post-growth economic movement, the regenerative economic movement is much, much stronger than it was 10 years ago, say, after the, the last financial crash. And equally, the whole narratives around intergenerational justice um, and, and caring about future generations are much stronger than they were 10, 15 years ago as well. You know, you've got people like Greta Thunberg talking about we need cathedral thinking, you know, like those medieval cathedral builders embarking on projects they'd never see finished within their own lifetime. So... You know, I think there's there's some hope, but, you know, crises. I remember when the bushfires hit uh, Sydney in late 2019, where my father lives, he had to flee from the fires. But even him and a lot of his friends were saying, oh, well, you know, bushfires come along all the time. And they were even worse back in the 1940s or 1950s sometimes. And they didn't want to grasp that these could be almost certainly linked to the climate crisis. Um, we so easily allow ourselves to go into denial, you know, even at a moment of crisis, we bury our heads in the sand. So we've got to keep our heads up, our eyes open and our gaze on those future generations. And last thing is, is, is the kind of, is, is the real key to unlocking this door that these issues have to affect people in power because like you say about the great stink of 1848, I live in Lambeth and I actually read the plaque 
on the uh, embankment about a couple of weeks ago, going for a walk with my family. And there's a plaque there commemorating the people who died from cholera during that period. But of course, nothing happened, like you said um, earlier, nothing happened until it affected the MPs in Parliament who could smell it. And then they passed a bill in 16 days. So is that what we're waiting for? The moment that people in power start to realise this is this is affecting me? Because what worries me is that, like you say in the book, when climate change starts to affect, I mean, it's already affecting the world, when climate change continues to affect the world, it won't affect people with the most money. It won't affect people with the most power. It will affect people in underdeveloped places who are living in poverty or who have uh, little choice and little opportunity to move anywhere else. So do you think that's what we're waiting for? And is it possible that that moment just doesn't come within the next two decades? And so things just kind of trundle along because people in power aren't really being affected by anything. I think that's right, actually. That's my key conclusion in a way from studying history for 20 or 30 years, which is that you really only get the major changes um, when elite power whether it's economic or political, elite power gets challenged. As you said in the, the Great Stink, when the smell of the sewers was so bad it actually affected MPs, that's when they changed. And I think there's too much possibility today for those at the top of society, the 1%, however you view them, to protect themselves behind walls. I mean, if you think about when Hurricane Sandy hit New York City in 2012, okay, Half a million New Yorkers, most of them um, people of color or people from the lower socioeconomic realms, they were without power, they were without housing, without health care. But Goldman Sachs had 10,000 sandbags around and had their own generator. You know, that's the story of the future, a future of climate apartheid. And unless the impacts really hit those in power, we are heading for a civilizational decline. I mean, that's the kind of argument that Jared Diamond makes in his book, Collapse that civilizations collapse, whether it's the Roman Empire or the Mayans, when those in power are protected from the impacts of their actions. So we have to hope that on some level, things are so bad that those in power get affected. That's when Greta Thunberg said, you know, your house is on fire, I want you to panic. That was what she was saying. Now, a lot of my friends who are activists say, that is such a terrible message because it makes people feel disempowered or give up and so on. But that message is not for everyday activists. Everyday activists need a sense of hope. It's the, the elites need to panic. They're the ones that need to think that their house is on fire. And the more we make them feel and think that, the more chances there are of getting change. And I think that's something I took from the book, that for each of us, there is a perhaps unique way for us to tap into our legacy mindset, for us to view the world as a, as a project of intergenerational justice and to do the things that we can do on an individual level and then broaden out to our communities and our democracy to try and do what we can but I think that we should take whatever we can get if it's veganism that inspires us if it's if it's the idea of getting on a plane and pumping out gas and you don't want to do that anymore if it's the idea of driving too much or um voting for a party because because of an issue which you know is is a is a pretty selfish issue you've been doing for the last few elections and you want to change vote for a party that cares more about the long term what I got from the book is whatever it is that, in, that that gets you going, whatever it is that makes you feel as if you want to care about posterity and future generations, that you should you should let that um, let that take you over, if you will. Um, but there's so much in this book, and we've I, uh, we've we've not covered, I mean we've not covered a fraction of it in this conversation. But it's it's such a great book, and I would recommend anyone and everyone to read it because it will alter your perspective and actually might make you feel optimistic despite all the um terrible facts that are inside it so um i really enjoyed it and thank you so much for coming on today and, uh, to the podcast and speaking to me well i've really enjoyed it too really interesting conversation and i look forward to the the next ones thank you so much Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.